walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. I think it's a good thing, all right. Like, it might give me an incentive to give them up altogether, like, you know, so hopefully now it'll be a good way of giving them up. Very upset about the whole thing. I'm upset with the intrusive nature of, uh, of the government in every area of life. I tried to give them up anyway, and this is just the extra little bit of bonus. So I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully it'll go well. Dictatorship now. That's what we're living in. And so I'll never vote for Fianna Fáil again. Okay, that was reaction back in 2004 to uh, one of our most influential moments of the past two decades. Uh, the introduction of the smoking ban. It came into effect, as I say, in 2004. Ireland was the first country in the world to introduce comprehensive legislation banning smoking in the workplace. So how effective has it been? We're joined by Dr. Patrick Durley, chair of, of the Ash Council of the Irish Heart Foundation. Um, Dr. Durley, it was hugely successful, this ban. Yes, uh, I would say it was a, a runaway success. Um, it was the most comprehensive smoking ban uh, at the time. Bars, restaurants, clubs, offices, public buildings, taxis uh, were all included. And uh, with, with few exceptions like nursing homes and uh, other care facilities. So as you say, it was the most comprehensive ban and we were the first country to do it. And we were probably fortunate that Michal Martin was Minister for Health at the time. Although initially he didn't envisage such a comprehensive ban. Over a period of 18 months or so, we had very many lively debates um, about the necessity for the ban and, uh, you know, uh, the um, some people argued that it was uh, unnecessary, unworkable, yeah. unjustifiable. And the hospitality industry, of course, were very strongly, uh, very strongly against it. Uh, for for some time, although in the end they uh, they agreed and they they actually implemented it very well. But uh, though uh, uh, the tobacco industry, of course, was active in the in, in the background, and uh, they were trying to convince us that uh, ventilation was the answer. There was no need for legislation. But uh, a report by uh, Professor Shane Allwright, who is a, an emeritus professor in TCD, uh, 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 still. Uh, indicated that ventilation was not the answer. Okay. And in fact, there was another report, just uh, because this is an important one, uh, on the, the health and safety issue. And the minister then felt, uh, was able to say that he had no other option but to introduce a comprehensive ban. Yeah, it was. Look, it was. It was. A, it was the right thing to do, and there was lots of scare stories. It would never work. It would never be enforced. But all were proven yeah. incorrect. And I think we can all. I mean, I can remember coming yeah. home uh, on a like Saturday morning, getting up my clothes, stinking of smoke and stuff. And I look back at it now. I was like, how did we put up with it uh, then? I suppose the the, the 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 question is, where are we now in the battle against smoking? Has it had an impact in terms of reducing the number of people smoking? And how far have we got to go? Um, yeah, well, it, 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 we got a once-off uh, hit, if you like, uh, of about 1% just from the, the introduction of the ban. That was over a period of a year. Um, smoking rates have come down now. Uh, adults, uh, adult smoking rates, for example, are 16 to 17%. So that's like way down from, I think it was about 
uh, 30% uh, at, the t- at the time the, the ban was introduced. So it certainly did. And like we're seen as a model country by many of the, uh, by, by, by many others, uh, certainly in Europe. And uh, I can recall that because uh, I'm on a board of the, uh, the board of the European Network for Smoking Prevention, um, it's almost when you, when you, we used to go abroad, we do it all by, of course, at home now. But they, um, uh, okay, uh, that 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 organisation uh, actually, when you went when you went abroad, uh, it was almost as if you'd done the whole thing yourself. Like that yeah, everybody yeah. wants to talk we, about. We're it. we're the standard bearers now for for the rest of the world, which is which is good. Okay, it, it's it's undoubtedly it was undoubtedly a really positive development and a sign that governments actually can do some good uh, as well as some ill. Uh, okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Patrick Durley, Chair of the Ash Council of the Irish Heart Foundation. Thank you indeed for talking to News Talk Breakfast. Well, now we're looking back on something else, uh, some of the biggest moments of the past 20 years. And one of them, the smoking ban, is definitely something that changed the way people socialise and also had the added benefit of improving the health of pub staff and customers. 16 years ago, Ireland led the way for changing something which would now be considered to be completely bizarre, smoking indoors. News Talk reporter Josh Crosby has been speaking to those working in the hospitality sector about how much of an impact it had for them. They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars. Well, I know I had it. Oh, it was like a fog. I mean, the amount of smoke on a premises was just incredible. Like, I mean, some nights when you'd open the, the front door to let someone in, you just, if you were standing upstairs, you'd just see the, the smoke coming out the door. Like, it was almost like a smoke machine sometimes. That day was a dark day for our business because approximately, um, well, between 30 and 40 businesses, family-run businesses through the length of the rent of the country closed because it just wasn't viable. Local jobs were lost, you know. It was a pioneering piece of legislation and I think it did transform our industry for the betterment. While those that were smokers and still are smokers, it is an inconvenience for them to stand outside a premises and to have a cigarette. People used to sit at the counter, enjoy their smoke on their pint, and they kind of went hand in hand. So when it's proposed, and I mean, the, the law was just thrown upon us. We had no choice. There was no, I suppose, talking to the publicans whatsoever. It was a big hammer blow. It was just like one day we were open and people were smoking at the bar, and the next day it was totally different environment. And it took a lot of getting used to, especially for the older customers. Publicans, restaurateurs, and those working in the cigarette industry giving their reaction to when the smoking ban was first introduced. On the 29th of March 2004, Ireland became the first country in the world to prohibit smoking in indoor workplaces, public places and on public transport, with limited exceptions. It was a move which would transform the hospitality industry, place Ireland as a worldwide leading example, but most importantly, improve health. I spoke with Sean O'Farrell, who owns Legs Nightclub in Dublin, to find out how much of a change it was for businesses and staff at the time, and what steps he had to take to accommodate every customer. It was a real breath of fresh air for all the staff and for everyone that was working in that environment, because it literally changed overnight. It was, it was brilliant. It was really, really good. Like from our own perspective, on our own point of view, even our clothes and everything the next day, I mean, I can remember at home, you'd open your wardrobe and your suits would just stink of smoke, even though I didn't smoke. I suffer a bit from sinuses and 
after the smoking ban came in, the, the amount of outbreaks I had just reduced so much. It was just, just generally seemed like a, a healthier environment. And but what did you decide to do here? Well, it kind of evolved. When the smoking ban originally came in, we kind of cleared the area and we had some tables, picnic tables outside and some parasols. Then as it progressed and as more and more people got used to the idea, we just decided to invest a bit more money and uh, talk to various different people on what was the best solution and we came up with what we have now. And in some cases, smoking rooms have kind of become the, the main attraction of a place. People go out there, to get, they get their drinks and then they come back. Yeah, in a lot of places. I mean, it's, it's certainly, in 2004, it certainly changed the game and it, it helped us uh, stay relevant. But uh, it was just great to have the area that we could put people in, you know, because I certainly didn't want people standing around outside smoking because it's very hard to police and very hard to control. Described as a breath of fresh air which required pubs and clubs to start installing outdoor smoking areas. In the lead-up to the ban, some publicans threatened legal action over the move and others protested against it, while a TD was sacked from the front bench for smoking in the doll bar. The Irish Cigarette Machine Operators Association said at the time it was the darkest day. Its chairman, John O'Brien, explains to me the role of the operators and what the ban meant for them. We're taking in revenue of approximately over 145 million. Our, our members were, are made up of now. We have only approximately 50 Irish family-run businesses, mostly working in this industry over 20 years, some of them over 35, 40 years, employing local people in different sectors of Ireland, complying within the regulations and, and, and providing a good service to the hospitality sect- sector, mainly uh, publicans and, and hoteliers. Having family-run businesses working hard to build their businesses up, uh, at that day it was a dark day for our business because you know a lot of them had uh, worked hard, many non-smokers, with no possibility to promote smoking, or that's not what we are about. We are offering, offering a service to, to the, as I said, the public and, and, and the hoteliers, not promoting smoking in any way, just offering that service. And where that band came in, that approximately, um, well, between 30 and 40 businesses closed because it just wasn't viable. The sites of cigarette vending machines are certainly not as common as they once were. And last year, laws were proposed to ban them completely. When it comes to those working every day in the hospitality sector, I wanted to find out their opinion on the move and what it was like being in a smoke-filled workplace. Firstly, I caught up with the Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, Adrian Cummins. I remember quite distinctly uh, when I worked in the in our family business, worked behind the bar, the burning sensation in my eyes because the, the smoke effectively from the customers sitting at the bar counter was being blown in your face and um, it just wasn't a nice place to work in going home at night and getting the stench of smoke off your clothes obviously it wasn't good for, good for you for the restaurants themselves could, could you just describe the settings yes so you would have a smoking table or a non-smoking table and if you remember prior to that you could smoke on a flight in an airline and uh, so it was quite you know, you know, we changed with the times. When the legislation was brought in, I think it made perfect sense because it took away all the ashtrays, it took away all of the parts of promotional material that would have been encouraging people to smoke internally within a hospitality environment. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of countries look to Ireland as being as one of those countries that pioneered this. My name is Rona Lynch and I own the Swan Bar in Dublin city centre on Andrew Street. There was a lot of 
customers who didn't like it who didn't come back i've one particular chap that has not been in the pub set foot inside the pub or had a drink inside the pub since the smoking ban because he objects to the way it was brought in he felt it took away from what he enjoyed his pint his pipe and his pint and he felt that it just killed the whole atmosphere for him when it all came in you had to bring in measures i suppose did you and yeah i suppose the outdoor thing wasn't a big thing then people used to come into pubs and that was their kind of little bolt hole but then the outside area became a bit of you know a new thing that we had to have in order to stay competitive because people had to go outside smoke so it was a bit of kind of getting used to that and i suppose it did lead to a lot of people looking into and putting in outdoor areas in the pub but this was all thrown together and this wasn't there was no how would you say legislation put in place with regard to the smoking area what they were or what they weren't so there was a whole hullabaloo then what constituted a smoking area and then there was roofs there was loads of issues but i mean it did push a lot of people outside and kind of open up outdoor areas now for me i can only remember going to restaurants and noticing there were smoking and non-smoking tables or walking through a smoke carriage on the train but i wanted to hear what pub goers at the time thought of it and also those who were too young to remember such a practice well you kind of smoke less because you weren't sitting there with your drink in hand you, you went out and it was cold outside as well so you didn't smoke as much oh, it was grand like i used to go to the pub with to have a pint and get my cards and there was no getting up or walking out to have a smoke in between. Bloody annoying more than anything, like, you know. I'm used to it now. But you, you didn't like it when it came in the bed? Not, not really, no. When it came in, I think it was one of the bravest things that Michal Martin brought in. It gave people great hope for what Michal Martin was all about. Unfortunately, he's failed abysmally and everything else that he's done since then. But that's a separate issue. That's the political side of it. On the, uh, on the health side of things, it is, if you put people into a pub now that was on the scene 20 years ago, they wouldn't survive us, they wouldn't walk out at the end of the night. You were just surrounded by smokes, but you'd sit in the pub and you, you, you wouldn't be able to see a stage 20 foot in front of you because of the density of the smokes. So, can you remember how much of a big deal it was at the time? It's huge, yeah, everyone, oh, we won't go drinking anymore, we won't go out anymore, you can't even have a drink, you can't even have a smoke now when you're having a drink, blah, 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 and all the rest. Brilliant. I prefer just being able to go outside. I don't think, even as a smoker, I prefer to sit outside kind of have my smoke and a bit of fresh air they think it'd be too clammy and cloudy inside a bit of no. fresh air <laughs> fresh air <laughs> but the smoking areas they kind of created a bit of a space for people to go out and meet and they do but they also promote kind of smoking as well that's how I personally got into smoking was going into the smoking areas and having it <laughs> you started smoking from going to smoking areas and pubs I never smoked till I was probably about 22 and all my friends would go to smoking areas and just got drunk one night and started smoking in the smoking area <laughs> so just as someone who doesn't remember the smoking ban coming in what would you think if it was allowed in pubs and restaurants uh, well personally I wouldn't really have an issue with it like I, I know that they're still allowed some in some countries people still do that so it doesn't seem too bad and I know I wouldn't have an issue with it to see people smoking inside would be weird even if I'd love to smoke inside I still think like separate smoking areas with the bit with the heater on outside is just as the job just as fine and it's too cold for standing outside but too unhealthy to smoke inside so got to do what you got to do. A study from the Health Research Board shows there was almost an 80% reduction in exhaled breath carbon monoxide from bar staff after the ban. But what are the next challenges faced by those who work in the industry? Vaping is the new phenomenon and we were the first association to call for an all-out ban on vaping uh, in hospitality premises because the customers that are non-smokers it was unfair in those customers that you know abide by all the guidelines around non-smoking and yet again you had those customers that tried to bend the rules around vaping vaping is gone we don't tolerate it in our pub i just think it's it can be quite toxic like look no matter what i think the long part of the story is that 
The smoking ban was brutal when it came in. It was very, very hard for customers to adapt to it. But I will say, in the greater scheme of things, it was better for the trade. I think it's a better environment for people to go and enjoy their, their few drinks. And I think we lost a lot, but we gained a lot as well at the same time. You must be Smoke gets Today, of course, we're continuing our series here on News Talk about the 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. And uh, today it's the introduction of the smoking ban in 2004. Were you a smoker? How did it affect you? You can let us know today on 53106. John Mallon is from Forest, Ireland and joins us here on Lunchtime Live. John, just remind us, what does Forest stand for? Forest is uh, an organisation... Freedom is really what we stand for. It's, it's uh, the freedom of the right to enjoy smoking tobacco in, in this instance. But it's, it's uh, the personal freedoms of people. We're, we're libertarian, really. Uh, and and uh, we feel it's very important, particularly in a republican democracy, um, that, that we look out to our freedoms because they're, they're very hard won but easily lost. Right. So all of these years on now from the introduction of the smoking ban in 2004, um, by all accounts, it seems to have been a great success, John. Well, for those um, who supported, yes, the great success for smokers, uh, it, it was a complete change in their lives. Uh, a third of the population were smoking at the time. Um, well, a quarter to a third, they said. They were never quite sure what it was. Uh, and for them, they were suddenly unwelcome in the local pub. They were suddenly had uh, new rules in the, in the workplace. New well, I wouldn't say, John, they were they were they weren't welcomed. I mean, they might have been a little little bit inconvenienced in that so far as they did no, no, they no. go to a smoking area. Andrea, they weren't a little bit inconvenienced. Um, if you had introduced a, a ban on, on on drinking in a pub and you said you can buy the alcohol there, all right, but you have to take it outside to stop it, that that's the kind of inconvenience you're talking about. Where, for example, we had always argued it would be possible uh, to, to introduce a system that suited both smokers and non-smokers, where you could have had a separate smoking area uh, for people who like to smoke. Because at that time, uh, when the ban was brought in, publicans told us that between 50 and 60% of their clientele were smokers. And what we saw um, afterwards, the truth of that, was that when the smokers stopped going to the pubs, because they felt unwelcome there, um, the, 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 the pubs themselves began to close. We had, on average, one a day, I think, at one period of time for about three years. Right. But, but you're, what you were proposing, that I mean, sure, it wasn't really a separate smoking, ba- smoking area at all. Like, sure, the boat would have been under the one building. Under the no, one not roof. necessarily. Um, for example, there was a lot of publicans got very creative about smoking rooms. And it was a good idea. So, separate from the pub, you had to leave the bar and perhaps cross a yard <coughs> or go to an outdoor area and into a separate uh, room uh, to have a smoke. And, it was, uh, and for smokers that wanted to stay in there, all, they, could, all had, they had to do was to go into the bar, get their drink or their coffee or whatever, and go to the other area. Mm. And, you know, it was... Yeah, but what, what about the staff, though, John? The, the staff that were working in the pubs and those that, you know, didn't smoke themselves and but were going to be right. exposed the, the to staff, secondhand smoke? The staff had no problem. Um, and, and if you ask how staff, do you know that all staff didn't have a, wouldn't have a problem with that? I didn't say all staff. I said the staff wouldn't have a problem with an arrangement like that because they wouldn't be out in the other area. The smokers would be out there on their own. They'd be, they'd be bringing in their empty glass and they'd be getting another one or bringing in their cup and getting another coffee. So it, wasn't, it was something that would suit everybody. 
Uh, and it made sense. I, I, I have to say, John, I, I'm for, like my family's involved in the in the pub business. There were in the hospitality business at home. And I have to say, as somebody, you know, d- despite all of that and all of the arguments you're making, I think the smoking ban was one of the best things we ever introduced. Well, and as somebody that's, that you know, that's worked in pubs and restaurants, the idea of coming home absolutely stinking of smoke and your hair and your clothes and breathing yeah, that's, it that's, in. That's, and That's all the old hackneyed arguments. You could have easily separated people and catered for both parties. Actually, you know, John, you know what you're in your own if you if your own family are in the pub business then fine they're perfectly entitled to say no we're not having smoking in our pub we're being smoke free as long as other pubs who wanted to cater mm. could say we're right. having, allowing it now right i'll tell you let's stay with us john because okay. i have um a jerry McHugh here who is the owner of the cherry tree pub in uh, in in walkenstown um jerry what are your memories of the smoking ban Okay, hello, Andrea. Merry Christmas from the heart. Same, of same to you. Uh, we're great. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, the smoking ban was. Uh, I was listening to John there. Yeah, a lot of people had uh, very mixed feelings, including a lot of publicans about the smoking ban. And uh, John is right in some of his points there. I, I think he's probably right. In about fifty percent of the pop- of our clientele would have smoked at the time. So when the word came through that it was about to come, there was a lot of nervousness about the whole thing, and it was yeah. a very much a cultural shift. So we have to get a lot of things ready first. But um. I think, though, uh, looking back, it, it, it probably is one of the best things that ever happens. There's no doubt about it. It, 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 has, it has freed up um, so many spaces. I mean, pubs are so much cleaner and healthier now. And we have to remember, too, it was under a workplace ban. That's why it was so effective, um, because it came under, under, under employment health legislation. That's, that, that's the reason mm. it was so successful. But we have to look back and say that actually it was a success. Yeah. But it wasn't with some trepidation that we, with, that we counted down those days when the, when the ban came in. Because I think it was... It was, it was it was put back three times I think before eventually um, it became it became live at, towards the end of March in two thousand and four, but um, but uh, it was a nervous time I, I, I must recall it was a nervous time. Yeah, yeah. Alex is here with us as well um, on Lunchtime Live today. Alex, uh, you reckon the smoking ban was one of the most positive things to happen in Irish society? Why is that? I, I think so. And happy COVID Christmas. <laughs> Same um, to yourself, yeah, Alex. <laughs> It'll be a different one this year. Yeah. Um, I think this was more for the, the, the super pubs than the, the, so like the normal local pub. So the super pubs were taking advantage of, of the select so like volume of people within a place and with the, with the, the select amount of, of smoking that was happening and the, the heat that was generated. Because I remember so like a lot of the places that the air conditioning was turned off. So it was getting hotter and hotter, and the, the, the hotter and sweatier you, you were becoming, the more you would drink. Uh, so it's it, so it, prior to the smoking ban, it's it it saved them, or it made them an awful lot of money because of the, the amount of al- additional alcohol consumption. But f- from a from a general point of view, aside from the social aspect, people sort of going outside, mm. everything is much cleaner. So you, like you know that you can bring your children into into a pub now. During, during the afternoon and not worry about it. People working in the pubs, they're not, they're not breathing in so much so like, uh, so like nicotine and smoke all the time. Like I'm a smoker. It, it, right. I can, un- I can understand some smokers going, oh, I, I miss having the pint with my cigarette, but they go outside. Some pubs which had the space were very creative and it's just as pleasant an atmosphere going well, outside. It's interesting because the, the smoking area is often in the pub. It's, you know, it's kind of nearly a little bit of the, the, the main 
play part of the premises where people will congregate. Like I know some of my own friends smoking yeah. and I, I would often, you know, end up by, by accident in the smoking area, not by choice, but because that's where my friends are going. But it's not the same as, you know, an enclosed room. There's still fresh air coming in at either side of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's like, especially nowadays when we see how, how dangerous it can be to be in an enclosed area with COVID. Um, and, where it, 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 there's not much difference within sort of like with the smoking. So people who are who are asthmatic, people who are sort of like elderly, people who are young, they they were in an enclosed uh, area, and the smokers who were smoking by choice were damaging their health. Yeah, the second hand. Uh, yeah, when they didn't have a choice, um, and the second hand in a pub or, or in an enclosed space with. All you need is 25%. It could be more, could be less uh, people who are smoking. And it is the, the non-smokers would be the same, would get the, the same, if not more, effect uh, and more damage okay. uh, right. to their health because of that. Yeah, John, can I just go back to you, John Mallon from from Forest, Ireland. Just a point there that uh, Jerry McHugh there from the Cherry, uh, Cherry Tree Pub made just a few moments ago that probably a big element of the success of all of this was the fact that it was actually, you know, enshrined in legislation and there was a, what was it, a €3,000 fine on the spot and prison sentence too could be given, um, you know, even at a later point for anyone that were to, to violate it. Is, is that why this worked? <laughs> well, well, think to yourself, if, if for example, you you, uh, you applied the same logic to cars, I mean, we have a couple of hundred people a year dying from cars and hundreds of others being maimed and injured badly. If you but you're not going to, take, to compare now. So. No, 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 but if you decide to take cars off the road, I mean, every life matters, doesn't it? So if you decided to take cars off the road, introduce a €3,000 fine for driving it, for driving your car or, you know, moving it an inch. <laughs> Uh, introduce the, the threat of a, of a prison sentence for us and you'd get cars off the road right. I, I have to say I, I, I don't know how you managed to use that as no, a, compar- but, but, a comparison to this but no, anyway. no, no, I'm saying if that's what you wanted to do you're asking the question would a yeah. 3,000 fine deter uh, somebody of course it would right. oh, and right. remember they, they've, they've also suggested that the vast majority of smokers are the less well off so of course it's, a, it's an attack on class if you like but uh, a 3,000 euro fine for the less well off that right. uh, would be huge. Okay. All right. Well, listen, we'll leave it there. John Mallon from Forest, Ireland. Uh, okay. Jerry McHugh in the Cherry Tree Pub. And uh, Alex, thanks for joining us here at Lunchtime Live today. This listener's got in touch with us in the News Talk text line and says, I'm a smoker. The smoking ban has been a great success. The guy from Forest is talking nonsense. Unfair to ask non-smokers and staff to breathe in somebody else's smoke. Another listener says, our rights have always been contingent on the effects of other people. And again, this listener, smokers are no longer free to damage the health of older people who are not free to Avoid them if they wanted to work or drink in a pub in the first instance. Anyway, time to look again at some of the most influential issues of the last 20 years. And today it's the smoking ban introduced here in 2004. It bans smoking in any workplace, including pubs and restaurants. But that controversy was only a minor skirmish in the ongoing war between big tobacco and governments all over the world. Sarah Milov is the author of The Cigarette, A Political History, and she joins us now on News Talk. Good afternoon, Sarah. Hi, Sean. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, thanks for uh, talking to us today. Uh, As I understand it, certainly in the US, uh, the tobacco industry was was in receipt of huge government aid. Yeah. um, For most of the 20th century in the United States, the tobacco industry, in some form or another, most visibly with tobacco farmers, 
um, was actually receiving a lot of subsidy um, from the federal government. And so we think about um, uh, you know, regulation in the United States as being, you know, more laissez-faire and hands-off. But actually, um, in the case of tobacco, regulation actually worked to the benefit of toba- the tobacco industry. Uh, and were, were they, was the tobacco industry, did it publicly acknowledge the, the, the fact that it was getting so much uh, federal aid? Um, in a way, they did. So the story of the government's involvement with the tobacco industry really begins during the 1930s, um, during the Great Depression, when the New Deal tries to subsidize all t- all kinds of Americans, but most importantly, um, farmers. And in the U.S. South, um, a really important group of farmers was tobacco farmers. And the reason the U.S. government does this is because Franklin Roosevelt's political coalition relied on the support of Southern Democrats, and Southern Democrats represented tobacco farmers. So they were a really important constituency. And so throughout the 20th century, these subsidies don't go away until the early 2000s, you know, decades after smoking is understood to be a major public health threat and public health issue. uh, Tobacco farmers are receiving a very generous subsidy from the U.S. government. And in a way, the tobacco industry tries to capitalize upon this by kind of holding up the tobacco farmer as um, an emblem of who might be hurt if one if the government were to regulate cigarettes more aggressively. Mm. And also, as I understand it, tobacco uh, was used in, in uh, a way to influence other countries or at least to sell into other countries that the, the, right. the federal government helped them in that regard. Right. So the the fate of the cigarette in the 20th century is really tethered to the uh, efforts of the U.S. government during the Cold War. So after the Second World War, you know, the United States embarks upon the Marshall Plan. And uh, inside the Marshall Plan is $13 billion uh, worth of aid. And uh, a large percentage of money that goes toward food aid to Europe is used to source U.S. tobacco, which again represents another form of subsidy for um, U.S. tobacco farmers. The fact that so many tobacco farmers were, were um, in the southern states, did the whole issue of then of tobacco and, and smoking particularly become politicized in the way everything's become politicized now in the U.S. and it's on a, it's on a left-right spectrum? Well, you know, what's really interesting um, about uh, the eventual regulation of cigarettes um, is that it did not fall into a left-right binary the way, you know, we expect everything to fall into mm-hmm. uh, that framework today. Um, and I think the history of the tobacco subsidy being really tied into the Democratic Party was part of this. So it meant that during the 1970s, when a, gr- uh, a movement grows to regulate uh, cigarette smoking, not really in the name of public health per se, not in the name that is of tobacco smokers, but in the name um, of non-smokers. And the most effective movement to regulate smoking was by non-smokers saying, it is my right to be free of secondhand smoke, of mm. you know tobacco smoke around me. Um, that movement uh, was uh, a movement of Republicans and Democrats and largely led by women. Um, so because the history of tobacco subsidy had been kind of a, a democratic issue, um, it meant that the the undoing of that way of 
of regulating tobacco uh, was bipartisan. Also as well, could one be forgiven for the suspicion that that, uh, uh, many large corporations who were large employers of people in the US would like to see a workplace ban on smoking? They just didn't want to say it out loud. Yeah, so um, a really important turning point in the history of the cigarette happens in the 1970s. Uh, when uh, a woman who works for um, Bell Telephone, which was one of the largest uh, corporations in the United States at the time, basically sues her employer because she's exposed to too much secondhand smoke and it gives her a rash and she has allergies and she has to spend um, many days um, at home from work. And she wins her lawsuit, which uh, begins the movement of, of workers basically saying, we have a right to a safe and healthy work environment. And in response, corporations also fear liability if they don't implement some kind of workplace smoking restrictions. So beginning in the 1980s and really on the upswing through that decade, workplaces in the United States voluntarily begin to adopt workplace smoking restrictions. And what's really interesting about these is that there's a great fear that they're not going to be popular, that it's going to cause strife at work. But it turned out that Not only were they quite popular, they actually produced more non-smokers because they helped many smoking employees quit smoking. Mm, uh, But wasn't it also the case that that, that smokers tended to be less productive? I assume because they stopped to smoke all the time. That was an argument that non-smoker advocates would put forth. To man, you know, it's a and it was an attempt to in interest management in their way of seeing things, and so they would make arguments that smokers are 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 not productive. They damage equipment. They spend too much time at home. They're expensive to insure. Um, I think the you know the the empirics on that are more mixed, but it was certainly enough coverage for work workplaces to say, okay, we're going to adopt this workplace smoking ban because it's more efficient to have a ban than it is even to to have you know smoking uh, restrictions. In Washington, so it kind of provided cover. Yeah, in Washington D.C., Sarah is is big tobacco. Is it influential at all now? Um, well, yes. However, I would say that big tobacco's influence is not located necessarily in Washington D.C. So, unlike um, in Ireland. Uh, smoking restrictions don't come from the federal government. Smoking restrictions are implemented, like everything in the United States, in a really decentralized way. So states have their own laws, and in some states, cities have their own laws as well. And so what Big Tobacco has done in response to the, the fact that, you know, a workplace smoking regulation happens at the state level is in all 50 states, uh, Big Tobacco vies for influence at state houses. So for example, in the state where I live, Virginia, which is, you know, historic tobacco producing state, but more importantly than that is where Altria, the parent company of Philip Morris, is located. Uh, Big Tobacco succeeded in passing uh, a law in the early 1990s that says that cities cannot regulate more stringently than the weak regulations that exist at the state level, which means that in where I live in Virginia, there is no comprehensive ban on workplace smoking because the state law that was written in 1990 says that localities can't go beyond the weak state law. Sarah, thanks very much for uh, speaking with us today. That was Sarah Mylov, author of The Cigarette, A Political History. And uh, coming up next in the Hard Shoulder, Kieran et al. will be talking more uh, about our historic smoking ban.
Now, we're going to continue our series here on The Hard Shoulder, looking back at the 20 most influential moments of this century, as decided by you, by the News Talk listener. So we've had, God, what have we had? We've had 9-11, we've had Saipan, we've had Boom and Bust, we'd have plenty more in between. Today we're talking about the smoking ban. The 29th of March 2004 is when it was introduced and the man central to it all was the then Minister for Health, Michal Martin, now Taoiseach, who I'm delighted to say joins me on the line. Taoiseach, you're very welcome to The Hard Shoulder. Thank you very much indeed, Kieran. I'm delighted to be on and um, uh, thank you indeed for having me on. Yeah. We, we, we've been running this series and, and the smoking ban was one of those moments as decided by, by our listeners, which of course you, you, you were central. And can you just remind us of the, the background and the deep background? Like where, where did the idea first come from for this? Well, I think, the, to be fair, there was a lot of uh, activity around the uh, early 2000s in relation to tobacco control and the doyle itself. And the, the, the Oireachtas Committee uh, had been uh, looking at a tobacco control um, framework. Uh, there was a very uh, proactive civil servant at the time, Tom Power, who, who sadly passed away afterwards. But I, I always hold him in the highest of regard in terms of not just the smoking ban, but the full range of... Uh, anti-tobacco uh, measures that came in and indeed he was the first chief executive officer of the office of tobacco control that we established subsequent to legislation we passed in 2002 and that that legislation in 2002 was the key piece of legislation that not just enabled the smoking ban itself in the workplace but also other measures such as uh, you know, having tobacco uh, under the counter, uh, uh, banning advertising, uh, banning the marketing of, of, of tobacco products. Um, and, and so uh, the 2002 legislation was key to enable us to move then to the uh, smoking ban, which we brought in for the legislation to copper fasten that in 2004. Um, but the establishment of the Office of Tobacco and Control, uh, which Tom headed up, was key because that gave a dedicated single focus agency uh, to concentrate full time on researching, uh, building alliances uh, and developing a broad uh, support base to enable uh, the smoking ban to happen. Uh, did, did he find as well that the right man uh, in the right place at the right time in terms of you and the Department of Health? Look, you would be well known, I, I don't think you mind me saying, for, for maybe being slightly more health conscious than, than, than some other TDs? I think yeah, we both. I often say, in terms of in terms of how public policy gets developed, that I think the the, the right politician met the right civil servant, and and Tom was an encyclopedia on uh, tobacco, um, and he certainly um, you know educated me to a fair degree in terms of what the challenges would be. But we both were enthusiastic, both very proactive to get this done, um, and um, that 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 was um, I think a very important combination um, at the time. Um, and uh, we, we, we drove it on. And what was very helpful as well was the, the Health Alliance that, that we dubbed it, the Irish Cancer Society, the Irish Heart Foundation, the Irish Asthma Society, and a range of other organizations headed by Luke Cancy and, of course, ASH, the organization that had for a long, long time been um, you know, campaigning on, on, on reducing smoking in society. It's a fantastic organization. And, and they then harbor, you know, they, they brought doctors um, and respiratory physicians, oncologists, cardiologists on board who did a lot of the campaigning uh, on radio and television. So that was very important as well in terms of building public support for the measures. Uh, what was the level of lobbying from the other side of the debate? 
it, it became very intense. Um, there, was, there was an Irish Hospitality Alliance was established. Uh, obviously, the publicans were particularly worried about the smoking ban, and they, they lobbied intensely, particularly the TDs of the various parliamentary parties. Uh, and I did come under a lot of pressure at the time from TDs within my own party, uh, and other parties were coming under pressure as well, because, of course, the publicans would turn up at clinics that TDs were holding and, and, and seek modifications or seek adjustments to the smoking ban. Um, and was so, there ever, and apologies for, for interrupting, was there ever a time that, you know, it, it got to a stage where, where people were thinking, God, we might need to reconsider this? Well, uh, to be fair, the, the then Taoiseach Bertie Hearn uh, gave very solid support to this. Um, but yes, yeah, some, some ministers, I remember Martin Cullen in particular, who was a, um, a chronic smoker. Uh, Martin was very exercised about this and very opposed to it at the time. And it was during the summer uh, period prior to that march, um, he, he, he let loose on it. Um, I think there were moments when uh, the pressure came on at the PP meeting, but what was um, at the Parliamentary Party meeting, that is, uh, but what was significant was Fianna Fáil Ardesh was held in Killarney and it was the day after the, 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 of, of the Late Late Show um, that I went down to it on the Saturday and what was extraordinary was the grassroots support for the smoking ban and I think that set the TDs uh, and gave them pause for thought uh, because you know the I had a cardiologist had come in to address the Ardesh on the on, on the damage that smoking does and he got a standing ovation I got a standing ovation at it in terms of the smoking ban and many grassroots members said look we want this to happen uh, and that was my experience across the country and generally people would stop you in the street and saying keep going keep going don't mind them um, and we want this to happen. And then research began to show that people wanted it to happen. So public opinion was very, very important. And again, going back to the Office of Tobacco Control, they had their research done. They knew how the tobacco industry, through the Hospitality Alliance and others, would try and uh, position the argument, you know, that this is unworkable, it's nanny statism, um, your, your research is flawed. Um, and, and all of that did happen. And uh, the Office of Tobacco Control and Tom also brought people from Boston and people from New York who had experiences of city bans uh, in terms of the challenges they faced. And the same arguments were used there as were used in Ireland against the introduction of the smoking ban. And yeah. um, so having that knowledge and, and having that preparation in advance was 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 very, very useful to combat that. When I mentioned the Ardesh, the night before, there was a, a major late, late show on the smoking ban, and half the audience were foreign, half against, and you had different uh, spokespeople and so on, on, and that was a very significant event in itself. Uh, I think that late, late show, I think Pat Kenny would have uh, been the host on, on, on that occasion. Um, and uh, I remember it well, because I think Pat said to me, you're going to be savaged at the Ardesh the following day. <laughs> so I went down in the middle <laughs> and I kind of worried. <laughs> I said, will I be savaged? <laughs> so, um, and it turned out I wasn't. So there you are. You mentioned some of the arguments that were made. I remember the days leading up to it and, you know, it was kind of a running story on the evening news and every now and then they'd interview someone, a kind of a vox pop on the news and it would, you know, there'd be someone saying, I'm not going to comply with it. I'm going to light up a cigarette. I have a cigarette and a pint on my way home or whatever it happens to be. I just wonder, how nervous were you that you might be faced with a situation that, you know, you'd be asking Gardy or whoever it was to be cracking down on these kind of, you know, harmless 60 plus men having a pint and a cigarette in a pub on the way home that you know that there might have been some truth in the argument that the lobby groups are making that you know compliance is going to be really difficult 
We were very worried, if I'm honest, and very nervous about that. What happens if there's mass disobedience? And I recall the the, the hospitality lines who were against the smoking ban um, went out to New York and said it had been disastrous there and it had cost thousands of jobs and so on. So I decided to go to New York and meet the health chiefs in New York. And I often jokingly said, it was the first official pub call uh, that any minister took uh, because we visited (laughs) pubs and we met them and they told us it was great. And it wasn't as bad as people had said. The first two weeks were difficult, but after that it was fine. But the health chiefs, we met Michael Bloomberg at the time, who was mayor of New York, who introduced it to the city there. But the health chief said, we'll give you one bit of advice because we asked him, what would you do differently? And they said, we wouldn't have worried as much. The people will enforce this and the people will comply. But you need to build up compliance. Things like signs and pubs, you know, environmental protection health officers who Mm. were brilliant, going out to publicans and restaurants and hotels and saying, here's how you now comply and to the workplaces. And here are the steps that you have to show to demonstrate compliance. And my favorite story about the compliance is Jerry Ryan, the late Jerry Ryan in his show, had sent in... um, an undercover reporter at about 6 a.m. in a doctor's pub in Dublin. <coughs> and um, uh, I think the, the, the undercover reporter kind of took out the cigarette pack, put it on the counter. The bartender was watching. Uh, then took out the uh, lighter, took out the fag, um, put the cigarette into the mouth, and uh, just about to light up when the bartender said, uh oh, can't do that. Today is the uh, introduction of the smoking ban in the workplace. I'm afraid you're not allowed to smoke here. And a big chair went up to the Department of Health when this was played back on or when Jerry Ryan sort of announced this on his show that morning. Uh, <laughs> and we said to ourselves, we're on the way now. This will happen. <laughs> this is going to happen. Uh, and I think we were lucky as well, Cairden, that it happened in March. It was due to go in in January and there was a hiccup because of EU legislation and a directive said you had to give notice to other EU countries. Uh, and um, there was uproar at the time when we couldn't bring it in in January. But actually, March was better from a weather perspective, and it was a beautiful March day. It was sunny, uh, and um, perhaps it, it, better climate in terms of the introduction of it at that particular time. Uh, were you prepared for the amount of international attention this got? No, I wasn't, not at all. And that took me by surprise on the day when I went to Bewley's uh, to, to launch to launch it or to, to to announce it that day, we were besieged by international media, CNN, and uh, there were two Japanese TV, TV crews there, um, and uh, all of the um, British news media, BBC, all of them were there, uh, and, and and channels from Europe. And in fact, uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs said to me that never had they received so many inquiries worldwide into the consulates and into the embassies inquiring into the smoking ban. Uh, you know, made front page of New York Times. The idea that Ireland would bring a smoking ban into the pubs was the kind of the news angle for, 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 for the world. Um, and uh, it just got enormous international attention, which I hadn't actually anticipated um, prior to it coming in. Um, and um, uh, th- that was a, a big surprise. If you were to step away from politics tomorrow, where does it rank in terms of achievements? Well, I suppose it's number one up there, without question. And it took me a while to accept that, because initially I didn't see it as number one. But um, to this day, people say it to me. And what's particularly gratifying is people who have respiratory conditions. 
Um, I remember members of my own family saying, and I hadn't realized it at the time, that they're, they never brought their children into hotels and that because they had asthma, for example. So if you have a severe asthmatic or you have asthma, you know, a smoking environment in the foyer of a hotel or a restaurant, or it just wasn't the place for you to be in. And then people with more severe conditions, cystic fibrosis, um, and a whole range of respiratory conditions, it made a huge difference. Um, people generally, of course, the, the early um, feedback was in terms of um, sore throats and difficulty with, with, with that area, massive improvement in terms of bar workers. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there was research coming out about the impact on, on heart, sudden heart attacks going down in, in, in terms of admissions to emergency departments. Um, so over time, it grew in terms of its significance and its impact as, as research began to reveal really beneficial impact for workers. Um, so without question, it, it, it is uh, the, probably the number one. Uh, research is another one, and, and, and special needs education, which I was involved in at an earlier stage. But we have to continue to work on that. Okay. But yeah. On Michael Martin, thanks a million for speaking to us here on The Hard Shoulder. Thank you, Kieran. Take care.